Welcome into Shat Talk, the People's Sports Talk Podcast, with your host, Bradley Shatra. And we are back with Shat Talk. This is episode 32. I spent the past two days watching pretty much every single possession of the NBA playoffs. Now, I did miss a little bit of the first games both days, but either way, the Nuggets Jazz Series, that one is going to be a good one. Those are two pretty darn evenly matched teams. I actually ended up going into overtime in game one. Jokic had a chance to win it, but he did miss the layup. But the Nuggets ended up winning anyway as Jamal Murray absolutely took over in the clutch for them. Donovan Mitchell finished with 57 points for the Jazz but ended up taking the loss. But that is an interesting, interesting series. I am excited to see how that one plays out. And it's been an interesting few days because if we want to break it down Yesterday, both number one seeds in each conference lost to the number eight overall seed in their conference. Another surprising thing was that the OKC Thunder honestly got blown out by the Houston Rockets. It really was not even a game pretty much at any point. The Rockets really controlled the game I don't even remember if OKC led at all or not. But that was a series I expected to be very, very close. Now, I'm not going to let game one of any of these series overwhelmingly shift my opinion or anything like that because I've been watching the NBA playoffs for way too long to understand that game one is, is not the one that tells all. Most of the time. Most of the time. Uh, But to start today, I want to start with the Los Angeles Lakers because last night losing to the Portland Trailblazers, I thought there was three very major issues that they're going to have to figure out or else they are in some deep, deep trouble, not only for a championship run, but for this series. Now, Portland is a team that they stick around. They weather storms. They're a good team at keeping the game at arm's reach. So if they can go on a little bit of a run, they get themselves right back into the game. Or I'm not really sure how to phrase it, but they're a team that stays within 10 points. Arms arms reach. Let's put it that way. And last night they did that. They did that when... The Lakers went on runs and would kind of look like, oh, okay, here it goes. The train's starting to move. The wheels are turning. But every time the Lakers seemed to start to control the game, Portland had an answer. They really, truly did. I was very impressed. I didn't think the Portland Trailblazers played that well, and they still got the win. But three problems for the Lakers that are pretty darn worrisome. Number one, their three-point shooting right now in this bubble has been miserable to watch. 
When you have LeBron James, he's going to get you open looks from three. It's pretty much a guarantee. And most likely, you're even going to get multiple open looks from three. Last night, LeBron James had 16 assists. He was finding guys left and right. Now, some of those were right underneath the hoop, easy baskets. But he easily could have had over 20 assists last night if the Lakers could execute on their open threes. Danny Green, since entering the Orlando bubble, has shot 25% from behind the arc. Last night, he was a minus 20 for the Los Angeles Lakers. Contavious Caldwell-Pope did not hit a field goal last night. Those are supposed to be two of the Lakers' best three-point shooters right there. Nothing. They got nothing out of those guys last night. I believe Danny Green hit one three. So it's absolutely worrisome. It's something that they are going to have to figure out. They were terrible as a team behind the arc last night, but those two stuck out to me because they are supposed to be the guys who can consistently knock down those shots. Now, I do think there is some changes that need to be made. I think Deion Waiters deserves a little bit more playing time so the Lakers can at least see what he's going to be able to give them in these playoffs. J.R. Smith is a tough one because he obviously hasn't played in a long time, but it's another guy who can knock down threes. Maybe you give him at least some type of playing time somewhere throughout the game so that he can get a chance to maybe get hot or at least hit a few threes for the Los Angeles Lakers. But it's an issue. It's a very big issue. It's something that they are absolutely going to have to work out the kinks of because they cannot win a championship, never mind this series, without three-point shooting. Number two, Anthony Davis's fourth quarter production is starting to become a story. He is very very passive in fourth quarters. He is not assertive nearly enough as he should be. The Blazers do not have an answer for Anthony Davis. Don't give me that nonsense about Yusuf Nurkic. I like Nurkic as a player on the offensive side of the ball, but he is not going to be able to shut down Anthony Davis. Now, Hassan Whiteside can do some damage because of his ability to shot block and his long reach, wingspan, and such. But Anthony Davis absolutely needs to be able to produce more in the fourth quarters of games. Last night, I think it was something like two or three points in the entire third quarter against the Clippers. His last two times out, I believe it's six or seven points total in two games against the Los Angeles Clippers. So we are starting to see a pattern here that Anthony Davis is struggling in the fourth quarter and he's bailing the other team out by taking three-point shots. That is simply bailing the other team out. They cannot guard him in the post and they have no answer for him when he just puts the ball on the floor, backs them down, bully ball, but that was not what he did last night. He was taking three-pointers and don't get me wrong, Anthony Davis can hit that shot, but last night he did go 0-4-5, and a few of them were wide open threes, but he's got to be able to get to the hoop, get himself the buckets that are almost 100% when it comes to him as a player. 
Anthony Davis is a top seven player any way you look at it in this league. And it's almost similar to Joel Embiid, as I don't think their play styles are similar. I don't even think they're similar players. But I do think that both when the both of them take three-point shots, all it's doing is basically giving the other team what they were trying to get. Nobody wants Anthony Davis in the post. When he shoots that three, he's giving them what they want. It's That's just the simple truth. And number three, I never thought I would say these words, but the Los Angeles Lakers are missing Rajon Rondo right now. And I thought there was a chance that their offense might be able to flow better without Rondo as... Even though he's gotten better, his shooting is not particularly the greatest in the league, but there is nobody on the floor for the Los Angeles Lakers that can play make and create shots for the other players besides LeBron James. That was very, very evident last night. Like I said, 16 assists, and the Lakers could not get the win. It comes to a point where when LeBron is off the floor or if he is off the ball, they need a consistent guy who can step in there at guard and get other people open looks. The Lakers offense looks stagnant without LeBron. It was not nearly flowing the way it does when he was on the floor. And I know that's usually the story and I'm absolutely in no way claiming that LeBron supporting cast is not good enough or anything like that that's not the charade I'm pulling here what I am saying though is these three things are issues and this third thing with Rajon Rondo I absolutely think it can help the Lakers but they need to get him on the court he is cleared he is good to go he was out last night Hopefully he's in there for game two because I do think he can make a difference. Even defensively on that side of the ball, his IQ is unbelievable. And I hate to say it this way, but playoff Rondo is a real thing. He has proven that time and time again. So it's going to be interesting to see if his insertion, insertion I believe is the word, in, into the lineup will make a, a, as big of a difference as I think it does. But those are the three problems. Those right there are the three problems. They're three-point shooting, Anthony Davis's production in the fourth quarter, and the ability to have a consistent playmaker that is not named LeBron James. Game one was tough. Big win for Portland. It ensures that they can now make this a real series. But the Lakers have some issues on their hands that they're going to need to fix. We'll see if they can. So moving on to the other team in L.A., the Los Angeles Clippers in Game 1 played, obviously, the Dallas Mavericks. And after a very, very hot start for the Clippers, the Mavericks started to severely outplay them. And halfway through the third quarter, they had a the Mavericks had a five-point lead. Now, this comes after I believe they came out of the gate. It was something like 15-2 to two that the Clippers led. But halfway through the third quarter, the Mavericks had a five-point lead. All the momentum was in Dallas's corner. They, was re- they, were, they were really playing well. Kristaps uh, Porzingis was getting himself some really nice looks and converting on most of those looks. Um, Luka had played really well. Now, he obviously started to play much 
better after halfway through the third quarter. But what I'm trying to get at here is halfway through the third quarter, Luka was held up by Marcus Morris, and they the two kind of went back and forth. And Kristaps Porzingis came in to the aid of Luka Doncic and really didn't even shove or anything. He just kind of came in guns a blazing, you know, saying, you're not going to touch my guy like that, and like any teammate would do. Now, the problem was earlier in the game, Porzingis did get a technical foul because he was arguing a call that in the end was a clean block. So he had a very good point on the argument, but he raised his fist as in a punching motion and the refs gave him a technical foul. So halfway through this third quarter, when he came to the aid of Luka Doncic, the refs went to the monitor and they reviewed the play and they came out of it with, are you, they came out of it with a technical foul on Kristaps Porzingis, which would be his second of the game. And he was kicked out. Now I want to make one thing clear. This cannot happen again in these NBA playoffs. To make everything worse, like I said, that first technical was not even a common foul. Never mind a technical foul. I think we need to get to a point where we have to realize these players are human these games mean a ton. Every possession matters. They're going to show emotion. Porzingis was upset because he had a clean block. And they called a foul on him. Any guy would be upset over that. Now then you fast forward to halfway through the third quarter. Any guy would be upset with their best player being held on a little bit too long and looking like he was having some... Back and forth with a player on the other team. Chris Stapps came to his defense like a good teammate does. He did not shove Morris. He did not hit Morris in any way. It didn't even look like he really said anything too crazy to Marcus Morris. But he was thrown out of the game. The Clippers ended up getting the win. Luka did absolutely everything he could, but it came up short. I'm not here to tell you that the Mavericks would have or wouldn't have won that game if Porzingis was in there. There's no way we will ever know. But I do have to say, that call completely changed the momentum of the game. Dallas had all the momentum, and Porzingis was playing well. And Porzingis was very important for the Mavericks on the defensive side of the ball. When he left the game, the Clippers started to turn it on, and they really started to shift that momentum into their favor. But this cannot happen in the playoffs. We have to get to a point where it's a little bit of swallow the whistles way more. I'm trying to get the word that I'm looking for, but... This was just unacceptable to do in a situation where the Mavericks, if they grab game one in this series, I got to be honest, it, it, it changes a lot. It, it, it really starts to give them or put them in a position where 
They have all the leverage to make it a deep series. I believe that the Mavericks can make this a deep series against the Clippers because I like the Mavericks team. I like the way they're constructed around Luka. But this was a tough call, and it's something that potentially could change the the way this series plays out. If this is a five-game, even a sweep by the the Clippers, I mean, you have to look back to game one where the Mavericks had really started to assert some dominance. They had really, really outplayed the Clippers since that tough start. And you even saw Marcus Morris come out and say that he didn't like to see this. Doc Rivers came out and said that he doesn't like to see this. This type of stuff cannot happen in the playoffs. And what makes it even more unexcusable is that the refs were able to go to the monitor. They knew he had a foul or a technical foul already in the game. And they called a second one knowing he would be thrown out of the game. I don't know what happened to the whistles get swallowed or it's a little bit of a rougher, tougher game in the playoffs. But we have to get back to that point. Because this was unacceptable and extremely aggravating as an NBA fan. We'll see if the Mavericks can bounce back today. They should. Porzingis will be in there. But this was unexcusable. So last episode, I talked about the Philadelphia 76ers and about how I thought that the injury to Ben Simmons could potentially open up some possibilities on the offensive end that we haven't necessarily seen from Philly before. Now, I do obviously think the 76ers will miss him tremendously on the defensive side of the ball as Simmons has the ability to switch on anybody. He's a guy who has an uncanny ability to get steals. He is at the top of that list almost every single year. He converts on those steals with transition baskets. He is absolutely one of the best transition players in the entire NBA. That is what he thrives off of. But in the playoffs, transition is not nearly as prevalent as it is in the regular season. But Philly came out against the Celtics in game one, and they really did surprise me because in the first quarter, Joel Embiid came out on a mission. He was aggressive. He was getting himself to the basket, and he was getting... The easy buckets that it is for him when he can get a mismatch in the paint. But I will tell you one thing. Embiid, he has to to invite the fact that double teams are going to come onto him. Because when the Celtics started to send two... It almost seemed as though Embiid was not even interested anymore. He, he, He didn't want the ball anymore when the double team came. And I'm not saying that he needs to keep the ball every single time and take a bad shot with a double team, but he has to be aware that that is going to come and it cannot be something that takes him out of the game because that's exactly what it did in game one. We saw Embiid get much less aggressive as the game went on. He even started to take threes, which... I just, I cannot get behind Joel Embiid shooting a three when he is as talented as he is in the paint. He's bailing the opposing defense out. But with that being said, 
I thought the story was the Boston Celtics. Now, they did just receive some terrible news that Gordon Hayward will be out for four weeks as he did get a very serious sprain to his ankle. And it's a tough one for Boston, but the good news is the Celtics core three are all averaging over 20 points per game. And even without Gordon Hayward, I absolutely think they can still thrive with that core. And we cannot forget about Marcus Smart, who is more valuable than his stats sometimes say, but I do also absolutely feel as though he can be the guy that wins you. I don't want to say wins you. He can be the guy that has some unexpected real production in a playoff game that allows Boston to get a win. On the offensive side of the ball, you always know what Marcus Smart is going to give you defensively, hustle plays wise. That's not something you ever have to worry about as a Celtics fan. But he has gotten himself to a point where he can truly shoot the ball pretty darn well. Now, obviously there's some games where he kind of gets a little overboard and starts shooting a little too much. It takes the offense out of the flow. But when he's hitting, the Celtics are much, much, much better. And their offense flows better. So this is a series where game one, I actually do think may tell the story for how this is going to go. Philly, it's on Joel Embiid's back. He needs to be the one that says, give me the ball and get out of the way. His shooters can fill in around him. And if Tobias Harris can give him some solid production as a second star, maybe Philly can turn this around. But I want to make that very clear. It is on Joel Embiid's back. And I believe it was only 14 shot attempts in game one. That is not going to cut it. He needs to double that. I need, not me, I mean, the Philadelphia 76ers need Joel Embiid in the mid to late 20s of shot attempts. He needs to take control of this offense and bring them to a win because nobody else on that Sixers team is going to do it. And I don't want to trash Ben Simmons or anything, but I don't think the story would have been any different if he's on the floor. Yes, he would have given them some production as the second guy that Tobias Harris needs to now step up and be. But this is Joel Embiid's team, and he needs to play like it. I I, I don't understand why he stopped with what he had started to do in the beginning of game one, because he was dominating the Celtics. And they are outmatched at that spot on the floor. Daniel Tice cannot guard Joel Embiid. The Celtics don't have anybody that can guard Joel Embiid, and he needs to take advantage of that. But with that being said, like I said, the Celtics just outnumber the Philadelphia 76ers in this series. They are the better team. They're top five in both offensive and defensive rating. 
They have the 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 grit of a good playoff team. I don't think Philly stands a chance. Unless Joel Embiid takes the responsibility of being the guy on the floor that has to carry the 76ers to a victory, this might be over faster than I thought it could. I'm going to say Celtics in six, but I won't be shocked if it becomes five after what I saw in game one. So to my baseball topic of the day, there was some drama in San Diego Not yesterday, but the day before. So let me paint the picture for you. It is the eighth inning. The San Diego Padres have a seven-run lead, and the bases are loaded. You got that? So on a 3-0 count, eighth inning, seven-run lead, bases loaded, it's a 3-0 count. Fernando Tatis Jr., who leads the major leagues in home runs, swung away on a 3-0 count and hit a grand slam to make it an 11-run game. Now, some people may be listening to this and say, so what? And to be honest, I agree with you. But in baseball, there are many unwritten rules. And certain people may have felt as though Tatis swinging on a 3-0 pitch with a 7-run lead was disrespectful. It was almost running up the score. I think that's ridiculous. Now, Padres manager did say that Tatis missed the take sign, but rightfully congratulated him when he got back to the dugout after the homer. He also went on to say that he spent 13 years in Texas and he made sure to put it out there that they were not trying to run up the score. But the Rangers manager, on the other hand, said he, quote, didn't like it personally, end quote. And the Rangers proceeded to throw behind Manny Machado in response to the home run by Tatis. And even worse, Tatis came out and said that he did not know about the unwritten rule and he apologized for what he did. So that's the situation. And I'm here to tell you that that is absolutely ridiculous. Tatis had nothing to apologize for. I understand that baseball has these unwritten rules, but we have to be able to acknowledge that some of them are stupid, outdated, and flat-out soft. It is not Fernando Tatis' problem that he goes up to the plate with the bases loaded and the pitcher starts him off with three balls. That is not his problem. This is comparable to what was going on a few years ago with the bat flips. Pitchers were starting to get all upset that when a batter would hit a home run, he did a a bat flip. They felt like that was showing him up or that was disrespectful. Listen, make a better pitch. It is not the hitter's fault for executing. 
Now, if this was eighth inning, Tatis comes up and the Padres run a suicide squeeze, then we can have a discussion about how this is ridiculous and a little bit disrespectful. Or if you got a guy on first base with an eight-run lead and he steals second in the eighth inning. Again, disrespectful, showing you up. But this situation, I cannot voice how frustrated I am that this was even made public and became a thing. Tatis went to the plate. He's one of the most exciting young players in baseball and one of the most dangerous hitters in baseball right now. Like I just said, he leads the major league in home runs. He gets a 3-0 count, and the pitcher gives him a fastball right over the plate. And he's supposed to take that because oh, he doesn't want to hurt his feelings. Give me a break. This is Major League Baseball. We're not in Little League anymore. I mean, it's just ridiculous that this even became as big as it became. Tatis did absolutely nothing wrong. And if you think otherwise, give me a break. To, f to finish off with my second MLB topic of the day, this is a dual MLB episode. Very rare, as I know not many people out there enjoy baseball the way that I do. But I want to have a discussion about Mookie Betts. And I want to have a discussion about Mookie Betts because I was very, very right. Mookie Betts is a top three player any way you look at it. I feel as though he is the second best player in baseball. If you want to say Christian Yelich, then you know what? I tip my cap and I respect that opinion. But this year for the Los Angeles Dodgers, Mookie Betts has 29 hits, 9 home runs, he is batting 305, has scored 19 runs, has 21 RBIs, and a 359 on base percentage in 95 at bats. Oh, and the Los Angeles Dodgers, they are first place in the NL West, and it doesn't look like anybody's going to challenge them. The Red Sox said they wanted to get under the luxury cap. They, they didn't want to pay Mookie the extra $60 million. And that's interesting to me. Because the Boston Red Sox right now are the worst team in baseball. If you want to say the Pittsburgh Pirates, again, I'll tip my cap and respect that opinion. But the Boston Red Sox are the worst team in the major leagues. Their pitching is flat out atrocious. You cannot change the channel to check the score of another game and then change it back to the Red Sox game without the other team scoring a run. I I'm serious. I'm serious. That's exactly how it feels to watch the Boston Red Sox this year. They have, they have very few bright spots on their team. I think Austin Bryce has pitched well for them out of the pen, and I also think Valdez has thrown well out of the pen as well. I don't know what the stigma around Valdez is for some Red Sox fans because he's a small, skinny kid, but he comes in there, he pumps 93, he's got a good release point, and his off-speed stuff is pretty darn good as well. The kid can pitch. Give it a rest. Now, Perez 
has honestly shown some ability to really pitch the ball. But he's not a two. Having him as the second guy in your rotation is a tough pill to swallow. And Eovaldi, I mean, Eovaldi's a big league pitcher for sure. He's a guy that should be in there, but he's not an ace. And he shows that when they play good teams like he did the Yankees the other day when he got knocked around. When you have a player like Mookie Betts, you do not let him go. His on-base plus plus slugging is the second best it's been in his career. He's making great plays in the field. He carries himself the right way. He is not in any way a guy that has a bad attitude or doesn't approach the game the right way. Mookie does everything right. And the Red Sox wanted to get rid of him because of the luxury tax. Give me a break with that. We now see what this has caused. We now see the value of Mookie Betts. I said it before the season. And exactly what I said is coming true. The Dodgers are unbelievable. Mookie Betts is having himself a year. And the Red Sox stink. Thank you for listening to episode 32. That is a wrap for today. I did want to let my listeners know that Shat Talk sweatshirts have been ordered. They are coming in. They are light gray. I only order enough to sell out. I do not like holding on to inventory, and I am not big at all. I'm still in the mud for sure. So get one while you can, not to imply that they will sell out quickly, but still. Uh, This will be a very basketball-heavy few weeks for this podcast. As the NBA playoffs are here, I'm going to talk about them. I'm going to tell you what I see. I'm going to tell you my predictions. And then we will move on as football is coming in hot. But I'm taking a break from talking football at the moment. I don't know if we'll get another dual baseball topic episode ever again. As I know, my audience isn't too particularly into baseball But it was fun to talk to baseball topics today. And I will see you episode 33. Or that LeBron James (laughs) is the greatest basketball player. That's tough. The Lakers should retire his jersey just because he put it on. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in and spending some time with us. Make sure to stay posted for new episodes and content. This show was recorded at Rhythm Room Studios in North Smithfield, Rhode Island by Nick Cloutier. Cloutier Productions, LLC.